I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to uh, Colossians chapter 1, the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. In the first 12 verses, he really kind of establishes the the identity of of that church uh, and his relationship to it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, with Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you, also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you heard it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might and attaining all of the steadfastness, patience, and joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, This statement to a church, to a congregation, is really important because it is the awareness uh, that Christians, um, just as Jews had, congregated themselves in small communities in everywhere that the gospel was preached. And they gathered that they may grow in discipleship and that they may grow in fellowship and that they may grow in um, their spiritual lives, not only for themselves, but that they might pass it on to their children and that they might pass it on to their children's children and that they might also be a light to the community who when they came to the Lord would also gather with them in that context. Now, I'm going to begin a series on the Disciple Center, uh, and today I'll only be able to introduce it uh, briefly. Um, The Disciple Center is both a typical congregation, and in many ways we're a unique congregation. We have a lot in common with synagogues, and we have a lot in common with churches throughout time and around the world, but we're also in some ways a unique expression of the Judeo-Christian faith. Now, if you look at the epistles, if you read the book of Acts, if you look at the book of Revelation, you will see a lot of churches mentioned and talked about, and they are all in some ways unique, and yet they have a common faith. There are things about them that are similar and things about them that are distinct and different. That is not a bad thing. Uh, So this series is really to talk about what we have in common with other congregations and what is, in some sense, unique to our own personality and character. Uh, We are often misunderstood. Uh, Some people think we're a cult. Others think that we are Jewish or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. 
Usually, this is more a result of the ignorance of these traditions by the person who is perceiving us that way. The people who belong to Judaism, who belong to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, don't think we're that, right? So it is people who don't know much about those traditions that see us doing something and say, you must be that. We live in a non-denominational context where many of our fellow believers and our family members are confused by our religious expression. And rather than think the best, they fear the worst. So how do we explain ourselves in the midst of ignorance and fear? So I'm beginning a series that introduces the Disciple Center and will address these issues. And I'm doing so for at least three reasons. First... From the time of our inception, we have developed and changed, that's been over a decade now, as we have struggled with the direction of this congregation, and so this series will be helpful to reinforce and clarify who and what we are about to our own members and to our children. Secondly, from time to time, each of you have had to explain the Disciple Center to friends and family And you need a concise explanation so that you don't confuse them more than they already are. Or end up confusing yourself. Thirdly, and this one is more a recent issue, there are several congregations that are beginning to use us as a model for their own adaptation of the Judeo-Christian faith. Both Judeo-Christian congregations and some Messianic Gentile congregations Uh, Messianic congregations that are dominantly Gentile and are trying to figure out how to uh, address this. Um, And so it will be helpful to have this both recorded and available for their purposes as well. So today I'm going to begin a series uh, by giving an overview of the idea and purpose of the Disciple Center. And over the next several weeks, probably 10 to 12 sermons, Uh, I'm going to unpack this and fill in more detail. And I'm going to use the Q&A time to be helpful uh, for us to discuss and address who we are and what we do as a congregation. Now, there will be questions you'll bring up that I will say I'm going to cover that later, so I'll do that. But this will help me to know what you're picking up and also where we need uh, to adapt uh, some of this information. Now, before I go into the actual explanation of the Disciple Center, and I hope that you will keep that uh, logo with the paragraph that's there kind of in your Bibles over the next few weeks, because I'll be reading that at each one and then drawing from it. Part of the problem is this is not a linear series. It's not where you do this basic one and then the next one builds on that. This is one of those deals that's almost circular. And in some sense, I could start in any place and end up in the back at that same place again. And so some of the material will overlap significantly each week, uh, hoping that you'll get kind of a gestalt or a total awareness of that. But before I do that, I want to give a caution. It's a caution that we give in our visitor's guide on the website. The Disciple Center is different from many congregations, and by different, we don't mean better. We mean different. Of course, we believe that we are attempting to be an authentic congregation, as God intended us to be. 
But there is a problem in that often when people are speaking about approaches to faith, they tend to talk about them in terms of right or wrong. If we do this, are we saying that if someone else doesn't do that, they're wrong? Or if we don't do something, are we saying that if someone else does something different, they're wrong? Now, many marriages have been destroyed by that kind of thinking. Denominations have been formed by that kind of thinking. When the other person is not different but wrong, then it's a zero-sum game. And now I have to be right, and I will protect myself by making really stupid arguments. But if we're simply different and we're saying, oh, I see why you do it this way and we do it this way, and we see what we're doing that has commonality and what we do that has some distinction, we get understanding, and that's what we're after. We're not after agreement. And we're not after conformity, but we're after understanding. Uh, so, much damage can be done by arguments that treat things as right and wrong. We are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That is, we are to be smart and gentle. And that requires us to know well what we are saying and that we say it with humility and with kindness. Um, and that's missing in a lot of apologetics today where it's, I see your verse and raise you too, you know, kind of thing. So we want to not, uh, not do that. So, recently I gave a post on our website and our Facebook page about the Disciple Center. That is under the, uh, that's on the page that you have. And I want to read that. I'm probably only going to get through the underlying first line today. Uh, and we'll get to the other things. But I want to read the whole thing because many of the things I'll say will impinge on statements that are found later in the paragraph. The Disciple Center Congregation, a a private Judeo-Christian community of faith. That ultimately is what we are. Now, what does that mean? The Disciple Center Congregation is a relational, liturgical, and multi-denominational gathering of households, both families and individuals, in community for mutual worship, for discipleship, for ministry to one another, and reconciliation. We are Judeo-Christian in our theology and in our practice. We function as a private congregation for the purpose of protecting the integrity of our members and to maintain focus on discipleship. Members of the congregation also participate in public ministry beyond the congregation as an extension of the congregational ministry and in concert with other congregations, ministry organizations, and fellow believers. We also seek to provide witness to the message of God through our lives and activities by intentional living and explaining the gospel, the good news, found in Jesus, or Yeshua, or Jesus, whichever term you want to use, to the Jew first and also to all the nations and all the peoples. Now, in some sense, this... uh, uh, captures the essence of what we are, but it doesn't give the details. So over the next uh, many weeks, I'm going to try to give those differences. Today, I just want to talk a little bit about our name, about the function of that name, and about the emblems of the logo, why those are there. Uh, The name, the Disciple Center, is the name that we chose for the congregation. That name is intentional in that it places the focus of our congregation on discipleship. Our Hebrew name 
would be, uh, and those of you who can remember a little bit of sounding out your Hebrew, you have it there. Our Hebrew name would be Beit Shel Talmudim, or simply Beit Talmudim. Uh, if you were speaking to a Jewish person or a Messianic Jewish person, and they said, what congregation do you go to? Uh, they would understand us better if you said, we belong to congregation Beit Talmudim, House of Disciples. We call it Disciple Center in English. That would be its Hebrew equivalent. In Greek, some of us are in contact with the Greek church and some are not, but in Greek, our our Name would be Oleton Matheton. Same thing. House of students or disciples, which is what that means. So this was made for an intention not to be cutesy. There are a lot of people who try to get a cutesy name for their church. You know, St. John's by the gas station or the E Pluribus Unum Synod South of God Church. Those are terms that... uh, Dr. Hendricks once used, I, I love those terms, or my favorite of his terms, St. Anesthesia's, <laughs> the church of the eternal sleep, right? <laughs> uh, great, great names. People try to get clever with names. We're trying to be descriptive with our name. Now, the idea of a house or a center relates to our being a gathering. We actually gather together. Uh, We are a congregation. That's what the word congregation means. A grouping or a body. We are not a collective of individuals. Though we are individuals. We are a gathering of households. And I'm going to talk about the implication of using the term household rather than individuals uh, down in the series. But I want for now for you to understand that when I'm talking about a household, I could be talking about a marital household. I could be talking about an extended family household where more than one generation is in. could be talking about a non-marital household such as Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who were also in that. It could be a roommate situation or a uh, um, monastic kind of situation. And it could include an individual who lives alone in their own household. But we use the word household because it gives the idea of relational community and not simply it's about me and I go somewhere uh, because I want to uh, see what's going on. Now the congregation is a gathering of these household units and in that gathering we become community. And I'm going to spend some time talking about a theology of community but let me tell you that there are three things required to be a community. One of those is that we have to be in some way related to one another. There's a kinship or relational basis to that. And we are related to one another in the Lord. And that's why we call one another brothers and sisters. We'll talk about that. Secondly, there is a mutual commitment or a covenantal uh, 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 commitment that we have with one another that is very important. There are a lot of churches that are no longer churches in that sense. They don't have a covenant or a commitment to one another. They simply go because it's convenient. And if it becomes inconvenient, they go somewhere else. And that's not the same as a covenanted, committed community. And we'll talk about that. And then, of course, there is a common mission or purpose of that 
congregation. And uh, this is different than a more commercial uh, center rather than a community center. A community center is relational. It has a mutual purpose. And the people are connected and covenanted together. But in a commercial center, there's simply businesses available to anybody who wants to come and engage in a transaction. And so in some sense, our culture is filled with this kind of commercial utilitarian relationship. And so you have a mailman, you may know him, you may not know him. If he is gone or he retires, a new one comes in, the uniform looks the same, who cares? You might know them, you might even care about them, but that's not the essence. They bring you your mail and that's it. The cashier at the store is a cashier. And you may know the person and you may even go to the line where that person is and ask them how they're doing, but it's not the function of that relationship. The function of that relationship is they scan your stuff, they tell you how much it costs, they tell you to have a nice day, and then out you go. And if someone else is there, it works just as well. Now, in many churches, any person and any position could simply be replaced by another because they're programmatic and they're utilitarian. And while people might prefer this person to lead the music or prefer this person to be the pastor, there's no relationship there. And in a family, it's very different. In a family, if you lose someone in a family, you don't simply say, well, we'll just put one in their place. You may add someone to the family, but they don't take the place of another one. And so this community notion versus a commercial utilitarianism is very important. And yet, in the church today, a lot of churches have moved into a more business utilitarian kind of model. Now, why do we gather? We gather uh, for the purpose of discipleship. We are a house or a center or a gathering of disciples. But what exactly is discipleship? Again, I'll have to talk about this in more detail. But discipleship is a relational exchange or a passing on of a way of life, a philosophy or a religion from a master to a student, from a parent to a child, from a teacher to a disciple. It is passed on, I know how to live, I know how to do this thing, I am teaching you how to do it so that you will know how to do it so you can pass it on to the next generation. That is a discipleship system. It's not a 10-week course where you get a certificate and now you're a disciple. Two important aspects are foundational to this idea. The first one is the relationship between the one who is doing the discipling and the one who's being discipled. And the second is the content of that system that is being passed down. We'll talk more about that when we talk about this Judeo-Christian faith and, and the, uh, the rituals that we engage in. But there are four things that every congregation historically whether in Judaism or Christianity, uh, was designed to do. From the time that the synagogue was developed in the Babylonian captivity uh, and the temple was not available, to the diaspora, not only of Jews and Christians, who congregate because the whole body cannot come in one place at the temple. There is a function that happens, and there are four of those. 
The first one is, it is called a house of worship or a house of prayer. Uh, Worship and prayer are a similar term. It is the idea of gathering for communal prayer and worship. And God commands us to do this. Um, It involves singing of psalms. It requires the singing of hymns, the public reading of scripture, the giving testimony of God's uh, presence among us. And it is generally done weekly and includes a religious calendar that covers the year. We'll talk about that. In our case, we are liturgical about that. I'll talk about a liturgical versus non-liturgical framework down the road, but we're not going to do that today. So worship is an important part of what we do, and our facility has these pieces in it. There is this sanctuary and the prayer chapel that remind us that one of the functions that we do when we gather together is we worship God and we pray and we read His read His Word. The second one is that it is a house of uh, uh, teaching or a Beit Midrash, uh, the, the idea of, of a place where instruction and catechesis takes place, the actual learning of the discipleship. And that is done uh, by learning the knowledge and the skills and the values of the discipleship system that we found. Today we did a very rudimentary, basic liturgy of the creation. By next year, that will not do. By next year, I hope to have a more responsive reading where the reader reads the day and then the children and us respond and there was evening and there was morning one day so that it's more participatory. And eventually, we will even have symbols and and, uh, items that attach to those days because it helps us to learn that. It helps us to memorize it to internalize it, to make it psychologically real so that we retain that information. Because as I try to tell my students, though they don't always get it, if you went through a class last semester and you cannot tell me anything that was in that class, you didn't learn. Well, I got an A. I don't care if you got an A. You learn nothing if you didn't bring any of it with you. Learning is to retain the information. If you just throw it into your brain, spew it on a test, and forget it, you are only exercising your short-term memory. You are not learning. And disciples learn. And so the instruction and the reinforcement is done. That's represented represented here by our classrooms and the library to remind us that one of our purposes is to Uh, function together in that sense. The third thing is to function as a fellowship or a mutual ministry. Uh, A Beit Knesset or a house of koinonia. The idea is that the congregation gathers to reinforce our relationships within the community by intentional interaction and ministry with one another. Should have known that was going to happen. And through uh, fellowship meals and recognition of our diverse gifting within the congregation. So when we come together, we greet one another. We ask them how they're doing. After the service, we go uh, and eat and get to know each other better. We, We interact. These things are important because you are not supposed to come to a church, sit next to a stranger 
praise God, and leave. One of the problems with a huge congregation is that it is very easy for people to know nobody. In a smaller congregation, it's a little more difficult, still possible, to come in and walk out. But in most cases, somebody's going to ask you, who are you and why are you sitting in my seat? Right? There's some reason to have some interaction. And that fellowship and that interaction is critical because we have to know each other. It reminds me of, of a rabbi who had somebody telling him he loved him. And the rabbi said, tell me where I hurt. And the kid got irritated that the rabbi kept asking him why, where, he, where he hurt. And he said, rabbi, why are you asking me where you hurt? I'm trying to tell you I love you. And he says, how can you love me if you don't know where I hurt? In other words, in, in order to love one another in a communal sense, we have to know one another. I can love a stranger. I can do good for them. But in a community of faith, we are to know one another and to become, if you will, extended family. Then finally, we are recon- to reconcile relationships. You and I live in a constant struggle in our relationship with God and in a constant struggle with our relationship with one another. If all of you thought and acted and felt exactly like me, the world would be perfect for me. But it would not be perfect for you. And if I thought, and the rest of us thought exactly like you, and felt like you, and did things like you, the world would be perfect for you. But it's not that. We are to reconcile to God... And we are to reconcile to one another. And that means that our relationships are going to have difficulties. And those difficulties are part of what we do here as well. And so our counseling rooms and the rooms where people can go in and say, let's talk, we have an issue, are here to remind us that that's also a function that we are to reconcile. As much as this depends on me, I'm to live at peace with all men. With you, I'm to work more Uh, strongly in trying to reconcile those relationships. So worship, instruction, fellowship, and reconciliation. We'll talk more about what those look like uh, down the road. Now, our identity. We are a Judeo-Christian congregation or community of faith. The Disciple Center, being Judeo-Christian, is a term that has to be defined very carefully. Because, like many other terms... There are conflicting meanings so that it's important to explain why we use it and what it means in defining our religious identity. If you say to somebody that you are Judeo-Christian, they may think that what you are saying is that you are basically an American. Because there are people who use Judeo-Christian to refer to the value system of America. There are people who use Judeo-Christian in a sense, to use it in a more political kind of framework. So we need to think about what we mean by that term. Within the biblical faith are two major religions, Judaism and Christianity. We'll talk about their separation and their distinction. The foundations, however, of these two religions are the same because they share the same foundational text, the books of Moses called the Torah by Judaism and called the Pentateuch, by uh, Christians. These five books lay the foundation and the direction for all beliefs and all expectations of Judaism and Christianity. 
Then uh, there is also, of course, additional books that somewhat separate us. We'll talk about those at another time. But there's another aspect that distinguishes us. Not just the text and religious aspect, but the identity, that is, peoplehood. Judaism and Christianity both understand that there is a holy calling and a covenant that God has made with Israel, with the Jewish people, as a light to the nations, the goyim. And there is a major distinction between these religions in understanding the Jewish-Gentile identity in relationship to the Messiah and the covenants given by God. And this is where we could go on ad nauseum, right? If a Jew becomes a believer in Jesus, is he still a Jew? And what does it mean to be a Jew? And what is a Gentile? Is a Gentile still an American? Or is he still a a Japanese person? Or has he become part of a kingdom of God that in some sense pulls him out of that identity? How does this identity issue of being a Jew or a Gentile in Israel or in the nations and being somehow together in the kingdom of God? How do we do that? Judaism focuses on that Jewish identity Whereas Christianity has predominantly focused on Gentile identity. And we'll have to talk about this because if we only address religion, we simply have Judaism and Christianity. And that's easy to talk about. But if we only address identity, we have Jews and Gentiles, and we have Jews and Gentiles in Judaism, and we have Jews and Gentiles in Christianity, and now we have a a logical nightmare. If we address both identity and religion, we get Jews who observe Judaism. We tend to call them Jews. Gentiles who observe Judaism. Historically, they were called God-fearers. Gentiles who practice Christianity. They're called Christians. Jews who practice Christianity. They're sometimes called Jews for Jesus or Hebrew Christians. We have Gentiles who practice Messianic Judaism, who call themselves Messianic Gentiles. And we have Gentiles who practice a Judaism-influenced Christianity, and that's us. We are, after all, Christians, but we have a Jewish influence, a Judaism influence on that Christianity because of our common text. So the struggle to address the split between Judaism and Christianity and to unblur the identity of Jews and Gentiles is really difficult. And the Messianic movement is struggling with this, and I didn't want to jump into that fray, and therefore felt that calling ourselves Messianic Gentiles would be problematic. And therefore, we have been using the term Judeo-Christian because we take Jewish identity seriously, we take Gentile identity, seriously. We take Judaism seriously. We take Christianity seriously in all their forms and are trying to put them into proper relationship. And that's not easy. So we are a Judaism-rooted Christianity and that connects us with those Gentiles who attach themselves to the apostles in the first century. Now, That's all I'm going to do about the paragraph. I need to talk a little bit about the logo. uh, Because the logo shows up and people go, why do you got that Jewish stuff? I always like that when people go, why do you have that Jewish stuff? 
You mean that biblical stuff? They, you know, gefilte fish is Jewish. Okay, couscous is Sephardic Jewish, but uh, you know, uh, these are biblical things shared by Jews and Christians. So, the Disciple Center logo that you see there attempts to bring a visual understanding of what we are about as a Judeo-Christian community. It does not use the Star of David or a cross. Traditionally, the Star of David is a symbol that combines Jewish identity with Judaism. And in the dominant emblem in Judaism is the Star of David, for both historic reasons, such as the Holocaust, and other reasons. And so to, to use that, uh, it's not that we won't use that, but to use that in our emblem would uh, say more about us than is true. On the other hand, uh, we do not use a cross. The cross is generally used as a symbol of Christianity, often in distinction to Judaism. When comparative religions are discussed, the Star of David is used for Judaism, the cross is used for Christianity. And if we put these symbols together, as many have tried, what you end up getting is people who think you are simply blurring things. And the cross can be, uh, if not understood as what you're using it for, can be seen in an offensive manner among Jews. And for some Gentiles who are anti-Semitic, they do a a quick knee-jerk reaction when they see a Star of David. It's one of the reasons that some idiot put a Star of David on our doorstep, a few carved it into the door uh, at the other facility, Uh, probably some anti-Semite who thought we look enough Jewish that he was going to scratch that in our, our doorway. Uh, so we can, we can be easily misunderstood. I, those two symbols are too loaded to be part of our logo, though they are important. We have a cross in the back of our sanctuary here, and we will use the Star of David. But those are not the emblems that we wanted to use. So what did we do? Our logo uses three symbols that overlap both Judaism and Christianity and allow for Jewish and Gentile identity to embrace those connections. The first one, and you see that as the dominant one in the back there, is the menorah. The menorah is found in the tabernacle and in the temple as a symbol of, in some sense, the tree of life, in some sense, the relationship of God with his people, and clearly a symbol used for Israel, the people and and the land. Um, And so that seven-branch menorah... uh, is one that is uh, clearly found within Judaism and is understood in that context. Now, the original menorah probably did not look like this menorah we have over here. The original menorah probably had the tallest uh, emblem and then the next branches came up and then the next branches came up. So it looked a little more like a tree and the lights formed this kind of inverted V. That's probably what the tabernacle one looked like. The more contemporary ones, and certainly the temple ones, look more like what we have over here. Uh, The Christians also use the menorah, but the Christian menorah is usually an inverted V on a single pole. You've seen them in churches with seven lights on them. 
and if you put the lights together, a, a Jewish menorah and a Christian menorah, they, they, in a sense, have that same seven lights. And the book of Revelation makes use of the menorah, the candlestick, as a representation of the churches. And so the menorah both gives us a symbol that is used to represent Israel and a, a symbol that is used to represent the churches. And therefore we use that. The second one is the tablets of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. These are found in the Torah, both in uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, listed as the Ten Words or the Commandments of God. They're also found throughout the Gospels and the Epistles being reinforced as the commandments of God and have been found in all expressions of Christianity until recently as foundational instructions of how to live in obedience to God's will and God's purpose. It reminds us of the covenant of Sinai and it reminds us of the kingdom to come when all people will obey the commandments of God from the heart. And so the Ten Commandments also is both a Jewish and a Christian emblem that we share. And then the chalice. The cup that is found in the Passover Seder that is used at the Shabbat, the cup that is used in the communion of the Christian service, uh, the Eucharist, uh, the, the Last Supper chalice, this is the new covenant in my blood spoken by Jesus, is again a common emblem of the salvation of God and the atonement made through the blood of the Messiah. And so in our symbols, the menorah, representing the people of God, the commandments representing the commandments of God, and the chalice representing the grace and mercy of God in bringing us salvation, is the emblem of the disciple center. And so what we have is a name that describes who we are as a gathering of households for discipleship, to function in that discipleship, to mature in that discipleship, and a symbol that we are a community of faith and that community is based on Judeo-Christian commonality as we as Judeo-Christians try to struggle with what that means in our faith for ourselves and for our children. Now, uh, I'm just about done. I just want to talk about uh, just listing briefly for you some of the things I'm going to touch in the next few weeks. So if you have specific questions about those, you can email me about those. We're going to talk about uh, this idea of private versus public, both in terms of the congregation and in terms of the uh, ministry, what we mean by a diaspora mindset, why we focus on the household rather than the individual, and why we are in some sense a little bit of a spiritual laboratory experimental group, and somewhat of a monastic community that follows a rule of faith. We're going to talk about what kind of households there are. We're going to talk about to what extent we draw from Judaism and Christianity and their traditions um, for our own traditions, in what sense we use text and tradition, to what extent we are liturgical, 
what does that mean? Why we have common rituals with Judaism and Christianity? What do we mean by holy space or a sanctuary? What do we mean by holy attire? Why do we use symbolic colors? Um, how, why do we use the lexicons uh, and the religious calendars and the biblical life cycle? We also have to talk about what we mean by a relational community and our covenant or rule and our relational rules and uh, relationships that are part of who we are. We have to talk about discipleship as opposed to evangelism or in connection with evangelism. What are discipleship relationships? What is the content of discipleship? What is the goal and purpose in the replication of disciples? What do we mean by covenant? How does that contrast with commercialism? How does that contrast with dispensational thinking? Uh, What are the covenants of God? And to what extent do we have a covenant with one another? We have to talk about our public ministries to the body of the Messiah, our public ministry to non-believers, and to what extent we are a public witness of the gospel of Jesus. And why are we more ministry-oriented than program-oriented? And what do we mean by needs-based ministry versus gift-based ministries. And so all of those things are things that we're going to talk about, and I think it will help us to have a better understanding of who we are and why we do the things that we do. Uh, But I'm going to let that go at this point. Uh, Let me do a prayer, and then we'll open up uh, the Q&A.